Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're discussing the fourth section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and this section was full of a lot to talk about. We need to have a little bit of discussion about dreams. That's what our discussion is really going to focus on today. So what I want to do with the dreams is really catalog them as they're referenced in the story so far, primarily because we get this huge, long dream sequence that seems to really tie together a lot of what's going on in the story, or at least I hope so. And I don't know if we get any dreams later on, but this seems to me the primary dream. Anything we get after this is only going to be clues to its meaning. So I really do want us to pause and look at all the dreams we've had so far. I want to look at what role they play within the themes of the story at large, or if they're revealing something else to us about the story that we're missing because of the action that's taking place in the foreground. So the first dream in this story occurs on page 25 of the edition that we're reading, which is the 1994 Orb edition. The dream takes place after the first night of experiments while the narrator is still a child. I think he's seven or eight years old or something like that. And here's what he says. It's very short. In my dreams that night, I saw the little boy scampering from one activity to another, his personality in some way confused with my own and my father's, so that I was once observer observed and a third presence observing both. So I think it's clear we're getting this imagery of threes taking place right off the bat, and that the three heads of Cerberus are not the grinning, the snarling, and the third looking out with tolerant interest. We have another grouping of threes, which we've seen all over the story, which kind of leads me to a bigger question that we'll have to answer at some point is, what are the five heads of Cerberus? We know there are always four present in every time they're referenced in some way. Even in the last section we read, with the reference to the grinning head of the slave, there's still only four people there. We never get five, I think, in the same room. So that'll be fun to discuss. But I think that dream is is pretty self-explanatory as it relates to the action leading up to it, and as it's kind of an introduction to dreaming in this story. Glenn, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this dream, just without any further context, but we're going to start piling on context here real soon. Well, something I think that we both thought when we talked about this dream in the episode in which this happened was that the little boy in the, this holographic image is possibly perhaps him or, you know, the ancestral patriarch of this family or ancestor of, of this family. And so that he is, in fact, seeing these holographs of someone who looks like he looked when he was a, a toddler as well. But now that we've had this section of the story to talk about tonight. Hearing this again really reminds me of something else that happened in this section. So here in the dream description, when he says that his personality was in some way confused with my own and my father's, here we've had in this scene that we've covered tonight that he confuses his personality. He doesn't recognize himself in a mirror any more than he's actually recognizing this holographic image of himself as a child. He doesn't seem to be able to recognize himself even when he's confronted with his own image. And that's one usage of that term confused is that he's not able to recognize himself. He's actually confused about his own identity. But we have this other sense of confusion during the play where he makes a gesture that reminds the audience of his father and gets this unintended laugh. So there's this other level of confusion of identity at play too between him and his father. What jumped out to me in this was this little boy scampering from activity to activity, which is kind of how he describes his life on the dream ship that he's on, and he doesn't know why he's doing it. But there's something here and this is before he's given drugs, that the experiments are pushing him to dissolve his identity. It has something to do with his consciousness. Well, right. Another thing that we might point out about the word confuse is that, yeah, we use it to mean, I don't know what's going on. But it also can, as as Neil Stevenson has pointed out in his uh, Baroque cycle, it can also mean to fuse things together, which is to say to take several different people and fuse them together into the same identity, which seems to be what's going on here with the cloning and with Mr. Million's personality being you know, bound into this simulator, that there is all of this wordplay that Wolf is, is using here. Yeah, and with the slave at the end as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, this dream sequence, I think, as we pointed out in the episode where we covered it, leads to another dream sequence, or at least is explained in some way in that dream sequence that is experienced by the narrator while he's under the influence of drugs that his father gives him. And this one is on page 34. I'm going to read this section as well. The drug that he had given me did not, as I had imagined it would, lessen its hold on me as the hours passed. Instead, it seemed to carry me progressively further from the reality and the mode of consciousness best suited for preserving the individuality of thought. The peeling of leather of the examination table vanished under me, and was now the deck of a ship, now the wing of a dove beating far above the world. And whether the voice I heard reciting was my own or my father's, I no longer cared. And this ends with him remembering the moment or at least dreaming about the moment where he pops out of the library ceiling and is looks upon the ships in the bay. And this is really a drug sequence, a drug-induced dream, but I think we have to include it because it's this mode of consciousness that the narrator seems to experience more and more. And that his dreams and this are really commingled in some way. Yeah, I don't think we need to try to make any clear demarcation between what's a nocturnal dream during sleep time and what's a drug-induced vision or hallucination. I don't. I don't think that's a line that exists for Wolf here in this story at all. I think they're they're categorically the same thing. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And in this dream, we get the first instance of him being on a ship. He is laying on the examination table. And that table becomes the deck of a ship, which he is on. And then it's the wing of the dove beating far above the world, which is this imagery of the sails kind of blowing in the wind, I think. We can take it to mean that, especially as we add on this context. So, Glenn, is there anything else in this stream that really jumps out to you in terms of the consciousness or the type of experiment that's being done on him? Or maybe if any meaning is beginning to reveal itself to you at this point. Well, what jumps out at me in the imagery of this stream is a real sense of isolation that's happening. One, he's lying, you know, alone on this examination table, and then his consciousness shifts and he finds himself on the deck of a ship. And maybe depending on how we read the grammar of this, right, that he also then might even be on the wing of this dove that is beating far above the world. And that in each of these cases, right, he seems to be alone in the world. There are not other people there, but also that he's on some kind of means of transportation that is removed from the places where humans are. Uh, If he's on the deck of a ship, presumably he's out in the ocean. If he's on the wing of a dove, he's up in the air above the land where humans dwell. And this seems to be reflecting his own sense of being really alone in the world that's been developing since the first time he's been summoned to his father, where even his relationship with his brother David is becoming less close as they are having different experiences with their father. And so I I think that's the theme that jumps out to me here now that we've got more of the story under our belt. It's fascinating to me that you see that isolation there because I see the further development of this confusion of identity between the boy and his father. Though he is alone, he no longer cares if it's his own voice or his father's. They could be the same given this drug and that his individuality of thought is dissolving as well. So there's both of these things going on there absolutely in conflict with each other. Right. But I think that that actually speaks to the theme, right? Because one of the things that he is slowly discovering is that he is a clone of this person he thinks of as his father, who is a clone of someone else. And Mr. Million is wrapped up in all of this, that they are in some sense, all the same person in a biological sense, right? Which we will talk about at length in our wrap-up episode about what that really means for personhood. But it does seem like here, on some subconscious level, he is responding to the subtle cues that he's getting, the subtle clues that he's getting that that is the case, by internalizing that these bodies that he perceives as other people are, in fact, just other versions of himself. That even when he's in a room with his father, he's really only in a room with himself. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. And this notion of the wing of the dove, I'd like to ask you about what you think of that imagery. So obviously the dove is the bird that represents or symbolizes 
piece. But when we get to the later dream, to me, this is really calling us to the imagery on the ship that he's having pieces of the same dream, maybe. And I want to know what you think of that as a possibility, but what the dove means to you in this section. Yeah, there are a number of things going on with the dove. And I think as you already alluded to, wings of a dove are often used as a a metaphor, a a simile for sails in English language, prose and and poetry about sailing ships. And Dickens does this a number of times for sure, and other people do as well. So that seems to be the the sort of mental link that Wolf is using there, which I think is absolutely brilliant. But I think as you suggested, we really need to also think about the biblical symbolism or the role of the dove in the Bible. So first of all, the dove, of course, right, is an important character in the Noah flood story. And we saw Wolf use this in Operation Ares as well. And that, of course, is a story about a man and his family being alone in the world on a ship with a bunch of animals. So I think that suggests actually even some of the imagery that we get at the end of the dream that we had in this section, where he's including the smell of the animals in this warehouse into his dream. But that dove becomes, because of its role in the Noah story, becomes a symbol of peace in Christian iconography. And in that sense, then becomes kind of an an antidote to all of this hellish imagery that we're getting about what the real world that the narrator lives in. So his dream world, perhaps, if we want to see the dove as being this symbol of peace, I think this is a place where he's at, like escaping to this dream world from the hell that he is trapped in here on San Croix, and in the waking world, we might say. Yeah, and his dreams are no great place to escape to, I might add. The fact that these wings are beating far above the world, I think, also is meaningful in that there is this place between the underworld and St. Anne that might also be the atmosphere or might be this actual space between these planets that we're going to see return, especially as he's climbing up and down the masts or looking over the edge of the ship. Right. And we've seen Wolf and Vulcan in several places and in several ways in this story, vantage points, high altitude vantage points where the narrator in particular has a real clarity, but also I think a real peacefulness and a a real peacefulness that comes from having a sure sense of self and a sure sense of place in the world. That certainly was how that scene in the library felt to me, that that felt like the narrator was in a very safe and comfortable place in ways that his own home didn't feel to him. And I think that that's being invoked here in this dream imagery as well. I agree. I think that's a great way to connect those images because they are explicitly connected in this portion of the text, but his being in the sails is also this place where he feels safe. And I'll just say one more thing before we get onto the the next dream, which is that we are going to get in the Book of the New Sun a a dream image or hallucination image of the protagonist flying on a creature high above the world. So this is clearly something that Wolf has on his mind and wants to use again in different ways. Well, the next dream we get is kind of an odd one. Maybe it stands out a little bit. Maybe it doesn't. I don't have a real thesis on these dreams yet. And so I'm, I'm discovering along with our listeners and Glenn what these dreams could mean. So this one takes place on page 48 and it's a dream of Phaedria. This is what the dream says. That night I slept with the fragrance in my nostrils and the thought, half plan, half dream, in my mind, that by some means, Phaedria and I would elude her aunt entirely and find a deserted lawn where blue and yellow flowers dotted the short grass. This to me is just a dream about our narrator's coming of age, his desire to escape everything with a girl he likes at the park. I don't know, Glenn, if you have anything else you want to add here to this dream. Yeah, this is a really great passage here. Really very uh, vivid, really descriptive. Starts with a sense of smell, but then has this vivid color imagery of these flowers that are dotting the short grass, which is fantastic. I think we've already teased in this episode that we're going to try to crack the color symbolism in our wrap-up episode, but I think it is significant here that we do get the blue and yellow together. But the word that really jumped out at me when you were just reading this, Brandon, is deserted, right? Because I think this goes back to this sense of aloneness, this sense of isolation that we've been seeing in all of the dreams so far, that in his dream world, there is always 
some word or some image that really emphasizes aloneness. Yeah, and he's always trying to escape some observer. He is always trying to get out from underneath the observer. There is not a moment in this story when he is not under observation. I think we're also meant to get from this his subconscious or unconscious integration of the fact that he is always under watch, that he is an experiment. And what that experiment is, he still doesn't know. But he's beginning to realize it, I think, more and more clearly, even as he has a dream about going to a meadow with, with, a, with a girl. Yeah, that's right. I mean, something that's really masked in the beautiful prose of this narrative and the way that the narrator is reflecting on his own life as a lived experience rather than from the perspective of an outsider. Something we lose there is that from an objective standpoint, this is the story of a boy who is being subjected to inhumane, unconsented scientific experiments by a crazy mad scientist in the rat feces infested basement of his brothel. That's the plot of this story. That That's what it's about. And really what this calls to mind, right, is that in the section that we've just talked about tonight, we get actually a narrative of the narrator's own progression in his experiments from frogs to mice to monkeys. And we made a big parallel there with the father's crippled monkey. But what we left out when we were discussing that is that in much the same way that the narrator, although he doesn't remember it at this point, has graduated from mice and moved on to monkeys and in doing so has discarded, thrown away the mice. His father has graduated from monkeys and moved on to experimenting on little boys. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's no reason why we shouldn't believe that his father is the one who created that slave as well. There might be other scientists on this planet, but according to the narrator, his father doesn't believe that many people pursue this because it's unprofitable. And you need a side business in order to have the income to do these types of experiments. So where this slave would have come from is up in the air, but it could be the father, that the father is doing this type of work. Also, his dream of escaping with Phaedria is at odds with his actual escape. When he and David come out from under the nose of the observer and are able to go somewhere with Phaedria, they descend into the pit of hell, not to a beautiful meadow dotted with flowers. Right. And he's not escaping on the wing of a dove. He's going the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely. The next dream we get is just two pages later on page 50. We covered this in our episode, but I'm going to read it again. (laughs) I mean, these are written so beautifully. They're always worth reading aloud. For a long time, I suppose an hour or more, I sat listening to the drumming of the rain and thinking about Phaedria and about what Mr. Million had said, all of it confused with my father's questions of the night before, questions which had seemed to steal their answers from me so that I was empty and dreams had come to flicker in the emptiness, dreams of fences and walls and the concealing ditches called ha-has that contained a barrier you do not see until you are to tumble on it. Once I had dreamed of standing in a paved court, fenced with Corinthian pillars so close set that I could not force my body between them. Although in the dream, I was only a child of three or four. After trying various places for a long time, I had noticed that each column was carved with a word. The only one that I could remember was carapace, and that the paving stones of the courtyard were mortuary tablets, like those set into the floors in some of the old French churches, with my own name and a different date on each. And this dream carries over into his waking world. So, Glenn, I'll just ask the question, what really jumps out at you about this dream? I think we covered in our episode that the term carapace, the sense of being unable to escape this container, refers to the narrator maybe experiencing Mr. Million's existence in some way. But I wonder if anything else really jumps out at you based on just our focus on dreams so far in this episode. I'll say that going through these dreams, cataloging them like this has really emphasized to me how they become progressively 
more complex and progressively longer until we, you know, we are going to culminate in the dream sequence of this episode that occupies several pages. This is the first dream that is a whole paragraph of this really dense prose. But something else that I want to make clear, because I think we actually didn't emphasize this enough in the episode where we talked about this, that this image of mortuary tablets, of gravestones that have his name and different dates on them, right? He is subconsciously coming to understand that he is a clone, that the DNA that makes up who he is has had a physical manifestation before many different times. Uh, I don't think we emphasize that enough in the episode when we actually talked about this dream. But I think what really jumps out at me here is a sort of binary of feeling trapped and feeling tricked, right? We get a lot of boundaries, fences, walls, ditches, these columns that you can't even squeeze behind, right? So you are you are either trapped inside something or you are being kept outside of some place you want to get into. But that also there's this sense of being tricked, right? The concealing ditches called ha-has. There are words that he sees on the pillars, but he can't remember any of them now. There's the word confusion we get again here. And then also this trick, right, that all the gravestones have your own name on them. And if you are not consciously aware of what is actually going on there, that seems like a trick. What can that mean, right? And so I think being trapped and being tricked is what's happening here in this dream. I think the flashing neon sign here, the word carapace, and and what I'm going to suggest is my kind of reading of these dreams or the nature of the experiment, which I don't want to jump into deeply, is that the experiments here are meant to have our narrator access the consciousness of his other clones. And that in this one, he is somehow accessing the mind of Mr. Million, the consciousness, whether it is of the simulated persona or the real person, that this dream is meant to show us what Mr. Million's internal life is like in some way, that he is a soul trapped in a carapace, that he could not see the trap that was laid before him when he decided to do this. And he he was uh, forced into it in some way, especially in hindsight. And that this insane name for a ditch where you trip and fall into it, and that's how it gets the name haha, because people laugh when you're not paying attention, that this inattention, that this inability to foresee the tragedy and the tragic outcome of your consequences is in fact the kind of burden that Mr. Million is living with. And we touched on that in our last episode. Yeah, I find that very interesting because I think that's a different reading, or at least a different sense than what I have of Mr. Million. And I think that's something that we'll we'll certainly get into at greater length in our wrap-up episode. But I have this real vision of the human who becomes Mr. Million, this, this person who uploads his consciousness into a machine as this rich person, this extremely rich person on Earth of the past who is trying to cheat death, who is using his accumulated wealth to cheat death, not as someone who actually is himself trapped, but as someone who is, in fact, escaping the trap of death. Yes, but he doesn't see the kind of ditch ahead of him. And if it is Mr. Million that our narrator's consciousness has reached either, as I said, the the man or the machine, that living within that carapace and seeing the strewn bodies of all of the generations that have come after you has to be as nightmarish as this narrator describes it. Ah, okay. I see what you mean. Yes, that's an amazing reading of this, right? That in fact, he thinks he's escaping death, but he's actually not escaping it. In fact, he's gone into a trap where he is not fully himself. That's perhaps what we get with him talking about emotions. Uh, This also calls to mind, in fact, the theme of death as a gift that we talked about when we covered Wolf's short story, The Packer House Method, where I brought into that discussion, in fact, the centralness of this theme in Tolkien's world. Yeah, exactly. But we're going to get to these kind of final questions after we cover this last dream, which is on page 55. Yeah, I'm leading us astray here. And I am, in fact, the trap of this discussion episode. We're going to table all of that for the, the wrap-up episode in just, just two more episodes. 
as I've been doing before, I'm going to read this whole dream because there's so many details in it. And if you are just listening along with us instead of reading for some unknown reason, I am going to do a little bit of the work for you here. The dream begins like this. I was on a ship, a white ship, like one of those the oxen pulls. So slowly the sharp prows make no wake at all through the green water of the canal beside the park. I was only a crewman, and indeed the only living man aboard. At the stern, grasping the huge wheel in such a flaccid way that it seemed to support and guide and steady him rather than he it, stood the corpse of a tall, thin man whose face, when the rolling of his head presented it to me, was the face that floated in Mr. Million's screen. This face, as I have said, was very like my father's, but I knew the dead man at the wheel was not he. I was aboard the ship a long time. We seemed to be running free, with the wind and a few points to port and strong. When I went aloft at night, masts and spars and rigging quivered and sang in the wind, and sail upon sail towered above me, and sail upon white sail spread below me, and more masts clothed in sails stood before me and behind me. When I worked on deck by day, spray wet my shirt and left tear-shaped spots on the planks which dried quickly in the bright sunlight. I cannot remember ever having really been on such a ship, but perhaps as a very small child I was. For the sounds of it, the creaking of the masts in their sockets, the whistling of the wind in the thousand ropes, the crashing of the waves against the wooden hull, were all as distinct and as real and as much themselves as the sounds of laughter and breaking glass overhead had been when, as a child... I had tried to sleep, or the bugles from the citadel, which sometimes then woke me in the morning. I was about some work, I do not know just what, aboard this ship. I carried buckets of water with which I dashed clotted blood from the decks, and I pulled at ropes which seemed attached to nothing, or rather firmly tied to some immovable object still higher in the rigging. I watched the surface of the sea from the bow and rail, from the mastheads, and from atop a large cabin amidships. But when a star-crosser, its entry shields blinding bright with heat, plunged hissing into the sea far off, I reported it to no one. And all this time, the dead man at the wheel was talking to me. His head hung limply, as though his neck were broken, and the jerkings of the wheel he held, as big waves struck the rudder, sent it from one shoulder to the other, or back to stare at the sky, or down. But he continued to speak, and the few words I caught suggested that he was lecturing upon an ethical theory whose postulates seemed, even to him, doubtful. I felt a dread of hearing this talk, and tried to keep myself as much as possible toward the bow, but the wind at times carried the words to me with great clarity, and whenever I looked up from my work, I found myself much nearer the stern, sometimes in fact almost touching the dead steersman than I had supposed. After I had been on this ship a long while, so that I was very tired and very lonely, one of the doors of the cabin opened and my aunt came out, floating quite upright, about two feet above the tilted deck. Her skirt did not hang vertically, as I had always seen it, but whipped in the wind like a streamer, so that she seemed on the point of blowing away. For some reason, I said, don't get too close to that man at the wheel, aunt. He might hurt you. She answered, as naturally as if we had met in the corridor outside my bedroom, Nonsense. He's far past doing anyone any good, number five, or any harm either. It's my brother we have to worry about. Where is he? Down there. She pointed at the deck as if to indicate that he was in the hold. He's trying to find out why the ship doesn't move. I ran to the side and looked over, and what I saw was not water, but the night sky, stars, 
Innumerable stars were spread at an infinite distance below me, and I looked at them. And as I looked at them, I realized that the ship, as my aunt had said, did not make headway or even roll, but remained heeled over, motionless. I looked back at her, and she told me, It doesn't move because he has fastened it in place until he finds out why it doesn't move. And at this point, I found myself sliding down a rope into what I supposed was the hold of the ship. It smelled of animals. I had awakened, though at first I did not know it. So we could probably spend a whole episode just talking about this dream. But there are a few things I want to just categorize and, and, and point out quickly. The first thing I want to point out is that he goes from the canal, which is something that is dug out, that is dragged by oxen. So there is some external mover to the sea where the winds kind of control the vessel up to the masts in the sky and finally into space where they are stuck somewhere. So there's that level of play going on. There's multiple places, but he's progressing, it seems, through these levels. And he's ascending, we should note. This is not the descent that he finds himself in in just a moment. The next thing I want to point out is that the sole person alive on a ship that is sailing is right out of the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. This is taken straight from that. And now we have just this explicit dream imagery that matches the epigraph of the story. If my reading is right and we are reaching back into the consciousness of the history of these clones, he says things like, perhaps as a very small child, I was on the ship. He's able to distinguish the personality of Mr. Million and his aunt, who are clones in some way, in this dream world, that they are separate beings. And he's able to easily distinguish them. Identity, in other words, in this dream world is a, a certainty and not a confusion when we get to this dream. We're told that the father is somebody that has to be worried about and that he has stopped the ship from moving in order to figure out why it doesn't move. And at this point, we are in the space between the planets, ostensibly. We have this imagery of the star crosser coming over, which kind of begs the question, who is in the star crosser? Why is this imagery here? Who is the real witness of this dream? There's so much going on here. I've named a few things, Glenn. I'd also like to hear what jumps out at you before I get into kind of my big questions about this dream. I'll say up, up front that I don't really have a coherent reading of all of the various images and motifs that we get in this dream. But there's several things that really jump out at me. Uh, first of all, when you were reading this out loud, something that jumped out to me that didn't jump out to me when I was reading it is that he interrupts the narrative of this dream in order to wonder about the source of it, right? He starts to wonder, how do I have these senses stored in my subconscious? What experiences have I actually had in my life that have given me this sense of sound and smell and motion and, and vision that are all present in this dream. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think that that points to this almost sort of Jungian reading of the experiments that the father is doing of trying to access a kind of genetic memory. And that's very cool. That's very interesting. And I think something that goes along with that is that we get him here describing how he goes to every part of the ship and surveys what is around them that he sees their surroundings from all vantage points, from more than one point of view, right? So more than just his own. And this this also might go to this Jungian reading of this, where he is suddenly realizing he has access to the genetic memories of people who have lived before him. But there are a couple of other things that jumped out at me that, that seem to call back to other things that we've gotten in the story. Uh, for one, the, the motionlessness of this ship out in the middle of space, and particularly this sense that the reason it's motionless is because his father has stopped it from moving. Uh, one, he's, he's breaking a thing to find out how it works, which is uh, maybe not the, the best approach. But this really calls to mind Dr. Marsh's comment about cloning and why it's outlawed on Earth is because it is anti-evolutionary, that it's outlawed because it stops the motion, 
right? And of course, we know that the father is out here in space in this colony that has different rules, clearly fewer of them. Given the parameters of this society and what is allowed here, how you're allowed to treat people, what sorts of things you're allowed to do to people, it is clear they have different rules. And so that seems to be what's going on here, right? That he has gone out to space to stop the motion of evolution here by doing these cloning experiments. Something you said really struck me earlier, which was this kind of Noah's Ark imagery, the 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 wings of the dove as the masts of the ship and the smell of animals connected as he's going down into the hold of this ship. And if you combine that with the imagery of the star crosser in this dream and the, the reference of the marooned vessel that we get throughout the story, particularly with the reference to the rhyme of the ancient mariner, we have maybe a, t- a total image of a wrecked civilization of this. If Vale's hypothesis is true, then this imagery totally fits with that assertion that there was a kind of shipwreck and they are just stalled out. And part of the reason why they're stuck is they've stopped themselves trying to figure out why they're stuck, but there's also no way they can get back home to their natural world to continue to evolve rightly. And so we have all these references to cosmetic changes and to the needs to have enough industry to support surgical stores where you can just buy whatever you need at that type of place and genetic experimentation, but no progress. And so that, I mean, really kind of jumps out this this kind of Noah's Ark image here with a shipwreck. And something else that we've seen repeatedly in this story is with a few exceptions, and the exceptions are probably very significant, this is a story that takes place within confined settings. It takes place within the brothel. It takes place within the library building. It takes place within this warehouse. So far, the only exception actually has been this play that they've put on in the park, where in fact, what they're doing is pretending to be other people, which I think is significant. Yeah, not just other people, but explicitly the original colonizers. So that's part and parcel of what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that's being emphasized every time that we encounter a space is the verticalness of it. We know from the start, the opening paragraph of this novella is about how their bedroom, their dormitory is up on the highest level of the house. We get discussions of the roof up there. We get emphasis on stairwells. And we especially get emphasis on the fact that the library and the laboratory are in the basement, right? Which, of course, has to be accessed through hallways that are dank with rat feces. That's the same image that we're getting here on the ship, that we get the the tops of the sails and then we get description down in the hold, right? Which, of course, smells of animals. And that's the same thing that's going on in the warehouse is the verticalness of this warehouse. And in fact, something that I hadn't appreciated until we got into this discussion, so I'm really grateful for this, is in fact that something that's happened while the narrator has not been aware of it, not been conscious of what's actually happening in his real life, that the three of them have climbed up to the top of this warehouse from the outside so that they can descend through the skylight. So while he's been having this dream about climbing up in the rafters, about being out in the uh, the black seas of infinity, he has been actually climbing up to the roof of this warehouse and being perhaps incorporating that into his dream. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this combination of the drugs expanding his conscious or unconscious apprehension of the world in some way, that he only comes conscious at certain times, those unconscious is able to do a lot of the work for him in the day-to-day. He can shave, his motor skills are okay, he can have conversations. But this realization that the drugs are allowing him to have place his father in the hold with the animals and then in the real world, we're, we're seeing this bleed over in a very important way with the slaves. And this is another argument for perhaps why his father is associated with this animal experimentation, with the, the creation of this four-armed slave, which is very much like a Ray Harryhausen image. And <laughs> if I were to see this as a movie, the only way I would want any of this done is if Ray Harryhausen were involved in some way or one of his 
late acolytes. Right. Well, that would be in keeping with all of the classical imagery here. I mean, this should be sort of a, a Clash of the Titans uh, spinoff. Yeah, I totally agree. What what else do you see here before we get to some of the questions about what the experiments are and then more importantly, why we think they're taking place? Yeah, there's just two more things that I want to point out here. One, of course, is that we do get this motif of loneliness, right? That is exhaustion from work and loneliness are the two sensations that he has while he's in this world. But something else that jumped out at me really thinking about this notion of this story as an allegory for a a real biblical, a real Christian cosmology is that every time we've gotten this, but especially here in this dream, this image of a star crosser landing on Saint-Croix feels to me like the description of Lucifer falling from heaven, right? Which I think this is going to go back to all of the Milton references that we've been cataloging in this story. I'm not quite sure what to make of that here, especially in this scene where no one gets out of this spaceship that, you know, it doesn't actually amount to anything, but it just has that emotional resonance to me or or sort of verbal imagery to me of Lucifer descending from heaven, falling from heaven after being exiled. Right. The star crossers seem as though they're shot out of St. Anne and into the atmosphere of St. Croix, and they just crash into the sea. And then, I don't know, apparently somebody has to go get them. And some of these boats, that's what they do. A seven-masted ship, I think, would indicate that St. Croix is mostly a sea. It's mostly water. Because you wouldn't need that many masts to move a ship if you weren't trying to move great distances. Right. It's the blue to St. Anne's green. Yes, exactly, though. I, I don't want to get into that argument with anybody. <laughs> yeah, we've got a few decades before we have to. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so who gets out of the Starcrosser? And in fact, we know that Starcrossers are the ships that come from St. Anne because uh, Dr. Marsh doesn't say he can't, came on a Starcrosser. He came from Earth. And so it's a particular bit of language that's used between these planets to describe the crossing between one and the other. We don't really have any evidence of spaceships leaving St. Croix. So that's all stuff to take in and think about. And I'd really love our listeners to dive in on this conversation in the forums because there's probably a lot we're not discussing, like what ethical theory seems doubtful to the dead, skeletal, flaccid Mr. Million clinging to the ship's wheel? Is it perhaps that you shouldn't break into someone's warehouse, uh, steal their money and try to kill a uh, sick person. (laughs) Yeah, that that would be a prediction. But uh, (laughs) maybe he's just saying carapace over and over again. It's impossible to say. Yeah, it is interesting to, to think about the function of the ethical argument in this dream, because it's not grammatically clear why the narrator doesn't want to go near the dead person while he's talking. The sense of it is it because he's a grotesque dead person, but it actually grammatically seems to have more to do with the fact that he doesn't want to hear about this ethical argument. Right. And if we're tying it to the rhyme of the ancient mariner, it has to do with guilt somehow that this dead crew is the fault of the living person. Yeah, absolutely. And so there, again, this might be genetic ancestral memory, but it also might be the narrator on a subconscious level understanding that he has begun to walk down a very dark path of experimenting on living creatures that is going to lead him to a terrible place where many of his ancestors have gone before. And it gives you the sense of this family actually being cursed in some way. He doesn't want to commit the robbery in the first place, but he's the first who's ready to escalate the robbery to a murder because he wants to experiment on how this slave was given two extra arms. Right. And of course, he describes that in the most ethically neutral or even ethically positive way he can, which is to say, I was eager to perform an exploratory surgery. What he doesn't say is, I was really excited to kill this thing and dissect it. 
I do think he's also kind of a victim in a lot of ways of this experimentation. So if I haven't convinced you, Glenn, or our listeners, that these dreams, that these experiments have something to do with the expanding consciousness or uncovering the historical genetic past of these clones, then I haven't done my job super well. And I'd love to hear, Glenn, if you think something else is going on. What is it? What are these experiments for what are they trying to uncover at this point i don't think that we have enough information to know that but there are two things that are going on about identity in this story two puzzles two mysteries right in the most wolfish sense one is the clones so one conceivable line of inquiry here is that generations of cloned individuals have been compelled to investigate the relationship between DNA and memory, which really I've been invoking Jung, Carl Jung, uh, the contemporary of, of Freud in this. But really, this is perhaps Wolf's real interest in Lamarckian evolution, which in, in fact postulates that the DNA, the, the genes of creatures can actually learn and can pass down information, uh, what I think now is really called epigenetics. And I think that's something we're going to want to get into in our our wrap-up episode. So that's one thing that might be going on here. The other thing that might be going on here, and of course, they might both be going on here, is this question of, are any of these people genuine homo sapiens? Or are they abos? Or is there a mix going on on this planet? Are some people genuine homo sapiens and some people are abos? And the father figure here, the narrator's father, is attempting to figure this out. He's trying to find out who is an abo and who is not. Perhaps trying to find out if he himself is an abo by experimenting on uh, a clone of himself. That to me is maybe a little bit more explicitly what's going on. If... As I suggest, the attempt of this drug-induced consciousness, this new consciousness that doesn't recognize the self but recognizes the past self or experiences the past self, the need to tell stories under this type of drug-induced hypnosis is an experiment that is rooted in an attempt to open the mind to the past selves. And this is going to get into our conversations of personhood and souls, that you're accessing maybe the souls of these past people, and that we see that with the dream of Mr. Million after he discovers Mr. Million's identity and his ability to distinguish between these people on this ship, which is his first drug-induced dream anyway, that he's kind of returning to that imagery, that at least on his mother's side, and again, my reading was that picture of the mother was from Earth, and that Aunt Janine shows this a little bit as a provocation, that at least the mother's DNA is what is stored, what is kept to turn into the clones, that he has to be at least half human, if not totally human, but that he's also getting the dreams of the abos as well, of the shipwreck that left them there, of the need to imitate the French colonists or whomever came, because everything has stalled on this planet. This is Dr. Marsh's first comment Why haven't you progressed in the past 200 years? You haven't built homes. You haven't done anything. Your population is dwindling. Everything is atrophying. So this is kind of my reading of the story at this point, that this experiment is an attempt to tap into the genetic history of both the shipwrecked abos and the human side. And and we're getting most of the human side in this story. And I think if that's the case, which I'm happy for you to quibble with, But I want to imagine the implication of this for Mr. Million, who might have come over as Mr. Million, who has memories of Earth and has witnessed all of this and has actually been the creator of this whole family line in order to solve this problem. But he's become entirely ineffectual. He is the dead man at the wheel. And in fact, the person in the underworld is now secretly controlling the ship because the wheel does nothing. Yeah, there's some really great stuff going on with your reading here. I mean, if we're going to take up your stance here that potentially the narrator is part human and part abo, then this is a really interesting corollary with 
the story of Christ, who is part human and part something else. There might be a way to read that with the names of, of St. Anne and St. Qua, uh, the fact that this is hell. I said earlier in this episode that Virgil's Aeneid is the, the most famous and most beautiful descent to hell. Uh, I, I will stand by it's the most beautiful, but in fact, Christ's descent to hell might actually be the most famous uh, descent to hell. Which takes place after his crucifixion. And we have this image of the star crosser, the unexplained memories of the ship, and either he is remembering the human experience of being on the ship to go out to greet the first abos. That's not a reading I can defend. That's kind of my own interpretation at this point in the story. That's who's in the ship. Look, we ha- we don't know who the... F- we only have four heads of Cerberus at any given time in this story. We don't really know who the f- fifth head is, though it's number five. Then we don't know who the fourth head is. And we don't know who's in the ship. There is always one thing missing from the elements of the story as I'm reading it. And I hope our readers have found something I've missed, but I think Wolf is doing that kind of library of Babel thing that we've discussed before, which is there's a hexagonal room and only five walls are discussed. What is on that sixth wall? What is the missing piece that ties everything together or creates the question that allows us to make sense of the story. Yeah, I'll say one thing to that, and then I'm going to quibble with your reading of this altogether, although I think that we'll get into this more in our wrap-up episode as we keep teasing. You know, there's a way to read these groups of four as having a fifth there, just in the fact that the narrator is called by his father number five. That seems like the type of verbal trickery, the type of wordplay, the type of punning that we know Wolf loves. Puns and repartee that I guess made him a hit with the ladies when he was 16. <laughs> right, right. right. So I think that that might be a reading of that, though we'll have to examine that when we get to the, the end of the story. Uh, one thing I do want to quibble with about this potential reading of the narrator as part human, part abo, is that I think that we have to take at face value this notion that there were, in fact, two waves of settlers, the French-speaking wave and then this English-speaking wave. And the narrator and his family are from this second wave. And so even if Vale's hypothesis is true, it was true of that first wave of settlers. And so there are humans on St. Anne and humans on St. Croix. And I do think that the narrator is fully biologically human in that sense. Now, I might be totally proved wrong in the next section that we read or in the uh, two other novellas that we're going to get to in this collection. But that's how I'm reading it, that the question really is more, are some of the people on this planet abos? But the father knows for sure that he himself is a homo sapiens. But I think you prefer the reading that the experiments are about abos. I think I right now prefer the reading that the experiments are about cloning. Again, I think we'll maybe we'll see what listeners have to, to say about this dichotomy, this binary here, perhaps. But we'll also see how the story works out next time. Yeah, I'm less interested in what the experiments are about. And I will only say that I think I'm saying he's half human at this point because I think we only have his mother's DNA. I think that is kind of a piece of the story. I think Mr. Million may have brought that with him, or there's something going on there that the clone is actually from the mother's side, and that's a bit of Aunt Janine's provocation in that in that section. And maybe that each strain gets weaker, and that's why we're seeing the atrophy, particularly in this family, that Aunt Janine is weak, the father is ill, getting ill, the narrator is ill, and that David actually might be more of a half Abo half human, and that he, as a result, is a bit of a test subject here. I'm comfortable with multiple readings here. The what of the experiments and what they're for is important, but I really want to know why. What is the father trying to discover by stalling the ship? I think that's the central puzzle of the story. I don't have an answer yet. I don't either. I don't think we've been given enough information. And and I think we have, I don't know, 20 pages left. And I think that is the question we need to keep our eye on. I think we've covered the dreams pretty well here. And I think our our listeners will have a lot to say because I'm sure there's much we left out. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. (laughs) 